Our second Bible reading this morning is from Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. It's on the Pew Bible page 1230. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider each other's better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God exalted himself, exalted him to the highest place, and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on, and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is God's word. Uh, good morning. As we come to uh, God's word, let's pray and ask for his help. Our Father, we thank you that you have spoken. We thank you that you have spoken here through Paul. And we pray that you would give us ears to hear and a heart that is eager to believe. We pray that your word would challenge us and encourage us. We pray that it would make us wise for salvation and that we would become more and more like your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, we love humility, don't we? Whenever you see humility in someone, they instantly become more likeable. Just think back to the Australian Open, the final with Federer and Nadal. We already loved them, or at least I did. But then after that final... As they were giving their speeches, they showed why we love them. The way that they spoke to each other, about each other, with such respect. It just made you smile. But it's easy to think about people on the other side of the fence, isn't it? Beck and I, our guilty pleasure every year is My Kitchen Rules on Channel 7. Contestants, they... Uh, make a, a mini restaurant in their home, they have their competitors and some celebrity chefs over and those people judge their food. And every year the producers feel the need to introduce some arrogant people into the mix. And so every year we're listening to them uh, talk down about the other contestants and about their food and talking up how they would have done things a whole lot better. And they always seem to be the last to cook. If you watch it, have you noticed that? They, they always seem to be the last to cook. And you're always hoping that they fail. Arrogance and humility 
have a big impact on how we view people. And we know that it impacts on how people view us. But it's a bit more important than that, isn't it? When we read Philippians 2, Paul's motive in urging them to be humble is for the health of the church. If we aren't humble, there will be disaster in the church, both in our relationships and in our witness to the world. In these verses, Paul says very simply and very clearly, be humble. In verses 1 to 4, we see the appeal for humility. In verses 5 to 8, we see the example of humility. And in verses 9 to 11, we see the reward of humility. The appeal for humility, the example of humility, and the reward of humility. And so the question is, will we listen to Paul? Will we be humble? Paul starts uh, with the grounds for the appeal for humility in verse 1. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion. And these four, four phrases are just different ways of saying that the Philippians are Christian, aren't they? They're united to Christ. They know his love. They have the Spirit. They've been shown God's tenderness and compassion. These are the grounds of the appeal. They have experienced the grace of God. Once they had been lost in their sin, and yet God had opened up their hearts to believe, to believe in the gospel of his Son who came and died to save them. In chapter 1, verse 6, Paul says this, that he is confident of this, that he who began a good work in them would carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. Paul knows that they've been saved. They've experienced this grace of God. They've been forgiven. And God is working in them more and more to make them like his son. And so he's laid down the foundation of this request that he's about to make. They are Christian. They know the grace of God. They have been forgiven. And God is working in them to make them like his son. And now he makes his appeal in verses 2 to 4. Make my joy complete by being like-minded. Having the same love. Being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of, out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul calls for humility, for unity rather. They need to be like-minded, loving one another, having the same purpose. They need to be united. Now that must have been particularly hard for the Philippian church because they were diverse. When you read Acts 16, you see Paul coming in to the city and he goes to a river and he preaches the gospel and the Lord opens up 
Lydia's heart. Now, Lydia was a businesswoman. Someone else who became part of the church was a slave girl who had been demon-possessed. Now her demon has been cast out and she's joined the church. Another person who's joined the church is that jailer. The jailer who was going to kill himself because there'd been an earthquake and he thought that Paul and Silas had escaped the prison. This is a diverse church, isn't it? It's an interesting collection of people and they would each have their own issues. How easy it would have been for Lydia to look down on that slave girl. For that slave girl to feel out of place with these people who are free. How easy it would have been for the jailer to be scared of even joining the church, of being part of it. He might have been afraid that he would lose his job because he was part of the church. But churches are always full of different and diverse people, aren't they? Even when things look the same, they rarely are. People have different levels of income, different standards of accommodation, different levels of of education. By God's grace, this church has even more obvious diversity. We have different skin colours, different family cultures. We love different foods. We even have different preferences for how we worship. And Paul calls them, he calls the Philippians, and he calls us to come together and to be united in purpose, to be of one mind. But what was their purpose supposed to be, do you think? Well, as you read chapter 1, surely their purpose was to be that they preach and proclaim the gospel. He calls them partners of the gospel in chapter 1, verse 5. In one twenty-seven, he wants them to contend as one man for the faith of the gospel. For a church as diverse as the Philippians, they needed Paul to tell them to be humble, to be united in proclaiming the gospel. And to be united in proclaiming the gospel, you have to be Christian, you have to believe in the gospel, don't you? That's the reason why we had verse 1. He said, you're Christian, therefore be united, be humble and proclaim the gospel. But we all need to be told this, don't we? The Philippians needed to be told it, but we need to be told it too. How easy it is for us to think of ourselves before anyone else. To want my own way instead of thinking about what's best for others. What might it look like for us to contend as one man for the gospel, to be united in spirit and purpose? Well, it would mean that we would all know why we gather together each Sunday as a church, wouldn't it? We would know that on Sundays we come together and we worship God and we encourage one another and we prepare to go back out to proclaim that gospel to the people we know. But what do other people think that church is for? What are some other purposes of the church that people have thought up? Well, some people think that churches are basically social clubs, don't they? 
Now, of course, there's, there is a social element to the church, and, and we love that social element. The church is the people of God that he has gathered together. We are a family, and we get together each week. But we don't simply get together to, to have fun, do we? To enjoy each other's company. It wasn't too long ago that, that many churches had tennis courts or, or bowls greens attached to their church. Have you ever wondered why that was? For some, it's very possible that the reason was that they wanted a way to connect to the community. They did see it as a gospel opportunity where people would come and they would socialise there and maybe they would be able to introduce the gospel into that situation as they made relationships with those people. That's very possible that some churches thought that. But I would guess that most weren't like that. I would guess that most thought that the purpose of the church was to make a contribution to society, to have a nice place where people could gather, and that that would be their contribution. Now, of course, we do want to contribute to society, we do want to engage with society, but that's not the main purpose of the church, is it? Our main purpose, the main thing that we want to contribute to society is not that we give them a place where they can socialise, but a place where they can come to be connected to Christ. And church is the place where we come together to be encouraged to go out and to proclaim Christ so that they can come to him. But we fall into the same trap. Once upon a time, churches, and some still do, have tennis courts and bowl screens attached to them because of that social element. But we still fall into that trap even when we don't have churches with those things. How easy it is to come together each week to, in our time together here, to sing and to pray, and then when we're out in the hall socialising, to not actually talk about God or the things that we've heard from his word. How easy it is to talk about the weather, our week, our job, the problems that we're facing, and not actually talk about God, not, not actually encourage one another with the gospel, not actually question one another, how are you going in your godliness as you live for him? It's very easy to just become a social club where we do our thing here in church and then we go out there and we simply socialise. Because we're Christian, Paul wants us to be united together in the gospel. But how is it possible? Only by being humble. Because it's when we're humble that we're willing to be uncomfortable. If my Christian life is all about me, then to be honest, I'm not going to want more people to come into church. Because they'll probably be different from me. And then I'd have to adjust. A selfish church would never start an outreach program. It would never engage in evangelism because... They take a lot of work and they bring in people who are different. You need to be prepared to engage with people each week. 
You need to go to the Box Hill shops and give up hours of your time to talk with strangers, all about the hope that they can have with, by believing in Christ. And really, who can be bothered to do that? It's my time, isn't it? Why would I give up my time to go over there? It's just selfish. You will never unite around the church's purpose of evangelism, will you? If church is all about you, then you won't sacrifice your time or your money or your emotional energy. You'll only be looking out for your own interests, not for the interests of others. You'll be, instead of loving them, you'll be sitting back, waiting to be loved. Selfishness stops us doing evangelism. And so the church won't grow. But more than that, it'll actually start to fracture the relationships that we have here. Paul says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. And so what's going to happen to this church without humility? If instead of loving people and considering them better than yourself... You do things to build you up, yourself up. Let's just imagine our musicians. What would happen if they weren't humble? Well, if they were being selfish instead, they would want to receive constant affirmation about how well they played. They would want to be thanked each and every time for their service because they gave up their time for us. Those who prepare morning tea after church, they would want affirmation. They would want thanks for the time that it has taken to do that. Same as those who do the cleaning. What is the point of doing things if you don't get recognition? Things would start to unravel. Relationships would fall apart because you've been doing things for affirmation instead of serving and treating others as more important, as better than yourself. You will feel unloved, even though it's you who has been unloving. Now, obviously, that's not to say that we don't thank people for their service. And we should thank people for their service. We should thank the musicians and those who help in morning tea, those who clean. We should thank the sound desk and the IT guys, even when they do a really good job. We only ever seem to thank them and recognise them when something goes wrong. But we should thank them when things don't go wrong, shouldn't we? Because we will want to lift them up. We want to humble ourselves and think of them as more important than us. We would want to sacrifice our own time, our own efforts, to thank them for their service, to thank them for what they have done for us, instead of sitting back and waiting for it to happen to me. Paul's appeal is that we be humble. When we're humble, the church will be united, both in making the gospel known to others and also in our relationships with one another. Because we're Christian, we must be humble. Now, if you're not a Christian here this morning and, and you're interested in attending a church and, and in hearing about Jesus, well, Paul would tell you to find a church that is humble. 
and that is united in proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming the good news of Jesus who died for sinners to save them. But more than that, he'd actually tell you and encourage you and urge you to be humble yourself. Be humble and come to Jesus. Come to him as Saviour and Lord. Give yourself to him. That's the appeal for humility. But Paul gives us more reason than that to be humble. It's not simply something that should flow from being Christian, although it is that. It's not simply something that because we're being saved by God, we should all have the same purpose and we should all gather together. This isn't Paul putting the guilt trip on, saying, look at how much God has done for you, now play nicely with each other. Paul points to something far greater than that. He gives us the example of humility in verses 5 to 8. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Why should humility be the mark of every Christian church? Not only because it brings unity, not only because uh, it helps with our witness out in the world, but because it comes to the very heart of the gospel that we say we believe. We were saved because of the humility of Christ Jesus. If Christ was humble, then we should be humble. Consider who Christ Jesus is in verse 6. In the form of God, equal with God, from the very beginning he was there, in pure, perfect power in glorious relationship with the Father and the Spirit. Untainted by anything, he created this this world by the power of his word. The love between the Father and the Son and the Spirit overflowing that they would create more beings to love. And he deserved to have all creatures fall on their faces before him. And when we rebelled, he had the perfect right to destroy everything. But he didn't. Instead, he who was far above everything else didn't greedily hold on to his position. Instead, he thought of us. He humbled himself. He humbled himself by making himself nothing. He was in the form of God and he made himself nothing. Not that he gave up his godness. He didn't make himself nothing by taking something off, but by taking something on. Did you notice that? Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Can you imagine the eternal, infinite God becoming human. 
once he was the invisible God, and now he has contained his divine nature into a human body. He has joined himself to that body. He came and was born as a helpless baby, the God who made everything, who has never been dependent on anyone before, became a baby. And he went to his death. The eternal God allowed the body that he had joined to himself and the human nature that he had joined to himself to die. The one who created and sustains all life allowed that human part of him to die. And more than die, die on a cross. Die a humiliating criminal's death. And, it just keeps going, doesn't it? And, to top it all off, it was all voluntary. He wasn't forced to do this. He willingly obeyed his father. He made himself nothing. He took on the very nature of a servant. He humbled himself to death, even death on a cross. Death in our place, our substitute, the sinless saviour who died for his sinful people. There is nothing that can compare to this humility. There is no example that we could think of that even comes close. I could offer you the story of my friend's former boss. My friend was a graduate accountant and uh, he's the CEO of the company that he worked for would make coffee for all the graduate accountants. That's very odd, that's very humble. But it's nothing compared to this, is it? It's not the same as the eternal God becoming a frail human being to die on a cross. No amount of humility can even come close to this. Maybe one day we'll hear the story of Donald Trump making a coffee for one of the cleaners at the White House. Maybe, maybe Malcolm Turnbull. Is that his name? You know, I've completely forgotten his name thanks to Donald Trump. Malcolm Turnbull, I'm pretty sure that's it. It's our Prime Minister. Good on you. So will we follow the example of our Lord? Will we humble ourselves and let it really cost us? Will we invest time with people to help them through a difficult family situation? Will we give up on that holiday over there because of the amount of money that it costs. And we don't want to spend all of that money on ourselves. We actually want to sacrifice some of that money for others, for those who are less fortunate, maybe to feed them or to proclaim the gospel to them. Will we follow the example of our Lord? Will we consider others as greater than ourselves? Or do we think that we are greater than he is? That we can't humble ourselves in that way? That that's too much? May God save us from ourselves and may we follow the example of humility. And may God also encourage us as we see the reward of humility. Verses 9 to 11. Therefore God exalted him 
to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If we didn't already know the story, we would never have imagined this. The disciples who had been told something about this still didn't expect it, did they? Between Jesus' death and resurrection, they were terrified, locked in a room. When they finally saw Jesus, Thomas still couldn't quite believe it. But Jesus hasn't simply and only been raised back to life. He's been raised back to the state of honour that he had at the very beginning. And now he's in that state of honour with a human body. What his divine nature had from the very beginning, he now has with a body, a reward from the Father himself. He's ascended back to the highest place, the place where he left in the first place. God has kept his promise that he made in his word. Jesus himself said in Luke chapter 14, verse 11, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And he is the prime example. And it's always been the promise. Proverbs 29, verse 23, a man's pride brings him low, but a man of lowly spirit gains honour. This isn't just an automatic thing like karma. This is a reward from God himself. This is deeply personal. As the father looks at the humility of his son and the obedience of his son, and perfect and personally raises him back up to the place that he was before, back up to the highest place. And now, now his name is the highest name there is. Once it was a simple common name. Once it was used of a person who angered the Pharisees. And now he's been exalted to the highest place. And so now when we think of Jesus, who do we think of? We think of the Lord of heaven and earth. We know who he is. The name of the second, per the, the second person of the Trinity now has a name. And his name is Jesus. But it won't only be his followers who recognise him, will it? It's not only that his name is the highest name, but that everyone, can you imagine that everyone will recognise it? At his name, every knee will bow in submission. Every person in the world, all intelligent beings in heaven and under the earth, will fall to their knees before him. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that will be a day of joy both for Jesus and for us, his people, won't it? All those who've denied him and persecuted his people will finally confess who he is. All those who've ridiculed his people will bow the knee to him. 
All those who've exalted themselves into, instead of submitting themselves to Christ will, will be brought, brought low, confessing that the one who made himself low on the cross has now been raised up to his rightful place. It is glorious to think about. But are you wondering why Paul put this last bit in? If Paul's big idea, his big point is, be humble. And he's already given us the appeal to be humble. And he's given us the great example of humility, Jesus himself. Why would he then go on to talk about Jesus' reward? Well, surely he's hinting at something, isn't he? Because not only has Christ been rewarded for his humility... But we will be rewarded for ours. In humility, Jesus left the glories of heaven and freely entered this world of pain, this world which would reject him. And humbly, he went to the cross when with just one word, he could have summoned legions of angels to get him down. The author of life, died on that cross, was buried in a tomb, and all the while his enemies were mocking him. And he was rewarded, rewarded by the Father who raised him to life again and exalted him to the highest place to rule over this world. And Paul tells us this so that we would know our reward. He says that we've been united to Christ in verse 1. And if we've been united to him, we will be raised with him and we will reign with him. That is the reward for all those who humble themselves. The thing is, though, that we all know that we fail. We fail to be humble. How easy it is to fall into pride, even pride at how humble we are. We think that we're making such progress. We put humility on the to-do list. We think of all the areas of our life where we need to become more humble. And as we see growth in, in that area, we become proud at our growth in humility. How can we be humble? only by the grace of God. It's only as, as, as much as, as Paul urges us to be humble, he urges us to be determined to have an attitude of humility. Paul knows that we can't do it alone. We need God's power because it's God who works in us and will bring the work that he is doing in us to completion. Because we've been united to his son, the spirit we have fellowship with, in verse 1, works in us. And so we need his help, don't we? We need to ask for his help, that he would change our minds and our attitudes, that we would think of others as more important than ourselves. We need to examine ourselves prayerfully, don't we? We need to ask ourselves, in what part of my life am I proud and then we need to ask God to make us humble. And can you imagine the change in this church 
the change in all of our relationships, the change in the way that we do evangelism if we were to do that. Old arguments would be forgotten as relationships in the church are healed. We would be eager to leave this place and, to be, and we'd be willing to sacrifice all of our friendships, all of our relationships with those who don't know Christ, all for the chance that maybe if we spoke the gospel to them, they would believe. We would risk everything so that they would be saved. We would put them as more important than us and our comfort and our love for the relationship that we have. If you haven't already submitted to Christ as Lord, then one day you will. But let me urge you to do it now. Do it willingly. Because one day, Paul says you'll be forced to. One day you'll be forced on your knees and you will have to acknowledge him as Lord. Do it now. Repent of sin now before it's too late. If you're not a Christian, remember Jesus' words. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Even now, as you deny to yourself the idea that you need Jesus to save you from sin, even now that is pride. And one day you'll be humbled. And so let me urge you to humble yourself now because God gives grace to the humble. Come to Jesus now. Repent of your sin. Live your life for him. And the thing is, to humble yourself and to come to Jesus is actually the best thing you could ever do. By letting go of living for yourself, you will live united to the king of the nations, the king of the world who reigns forever, and you will reign with him. You'll be raised to life again after you die, and you will reign with him. What is there in this life? What could you possibly be living for? Why would you remain proud and determined to live for yourself? when that is what awaits you. If you would just humble yourself and come to Jesus. The reward far outweighs anything that you would lose. And so come to him. Humble yourself. Paul says to us all, be humble. And so if you're not a Christian, the first step is to come to Jesus as Saviour and Lord and if you are a Christian, we need to consider others as better than ourselves. And so will we be humble. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this word and we thank you for the humility of Christ. We pray that you would be working in us by your spirit, that we would be made like him. That we would honour him. That we would consider others as better than ourselves.
that we would know our place, that we'd be like Jesus who gave up everything for others. We pray that this would bring unity to this church. We pray that our evangelism and outreaching to the world would be far greater, far more energetic, far more eager. And we pray, our God, that from our eagerness, that you would bring many, that you would humble many and bring them to know your Son. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.